Normally, we teach the Bible verse by verse. We're in the book of 1 John, and we'll be starting 1 John 3. But this morning, we're doing something different. If I can challenge you to think, I will have succeeded. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus presents two rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question presented in order to prove a point rather than get an answer because most often the answer is so apparent. The first such question is found in Mark 8, verse 36. Jesus said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The answer to that question is that possessing the entire world, if that were even possible, would profit someone nothing, literally nothing. And the second rhetorical question is found in verse 37, where Jesus said, Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That second question means, what is the equivalent value of the human soul? And the answer is, there is no equivalent. Nothing could equal the intrinsic value of the human soul. Through the means of these questions, Jesus gives us an estimation of our own intrinsic value. And how valuable is our soul? Jesus made the statement that our soul has a value that is more than the world, meaning more than the world system. If the human soul is more valuable than the world, then the first question is, and how valuable is the world? The answer to that question is that its value is found in its contents. The world's value is found in its contents. 1 John 2, verse 15. Love not the world, meaning the world system, neither the things that are in the world. So what things are in the world system? Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. In these verses, John has attached a three-part price tag to the world. Part one is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. The word lust means desire. So these are the desires from our own human flesh. If our flesh crave food, and we have this component... We could have the most expensive and exotic foods available in the amounts we wanted and as often as we wanted. If our flesh was exhausted and wanted rest, we could sleep for as long as Rip Van Winkle. If he's unfamiliar, he was a fictional character that drank some enchanted liquor and it knocked him out for 20 years, which seems to be a bit excessive. If our flesh desired erotic pleasure, then we could have the ultimate sexual experiences. If we wanted relief from chronic pain, then we could have a permanent pain-free existence. All the desires from our human flesh would be fulfilled if we had this first component to the world. Part two is the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. That's our visual desires. Our visual desires. So according to this statement, What we would see is what we get. If we were to see one of the more expensive cars ever manufactured, such as the Lamborghini Reventon, 
And since I don't shop exotic cars for obvious reasons, I didn't know that all Lamborghinis are named after bulls that once gored their mediators. So a bull named Revington gored a mediator named Felix Guzman to death in 1943. That Lamborghini Revington is no longer in production. There were only 20 made to be sold to the public, and then one additional one made to be housed in the Lamborghini Museum. Um, so it is rare, and if we c- can find one, it costs $1.9 million. But we, if we see one, and we want it, then according to this, it ends up in our garage. If we drive through Incline Village, which is a high-rent district, Although the medium home price has dropped some 36% to now just a mere $1.1 million. Such a deal. So if we see an 18.5 million lakefront estate for sale and we want it, then we just move in. Whatever our visual desires are, we get. If we have the second component to the world. Part three is the pride of life. The pride of life. So these are someone's prideful, egotistical desires. If we desire to have a celebrity status, we can have it. If we desire to be a household name, then we could be. If we desire to have enough musical giftedness to have an artist residency in Las Vegas, then we could. If we desire to become president of the United States for some insane reason, then we could be elected in a landslide. If the egotism and self-centered ambition inside us created a desire to have more YouTube subscribers than Mr. Beast, who has 176 million subs, if we wanted that, then we could have that. At this moment, a Frenchman named Bernard Arnault is the richest man on earth, since it seems Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are losing money. Um... Being a billionaire is not easy. It's a tough job. I mean, uh, we need to exercise some compassion for these billionaires. I mean, I just read Mr. Bezos is down $50 billion. He's having a hard time. It's so tight for him that he had to temporarily stop construction on his $165 million mega mansion. I guess he has a cash flow problem. I I feel bad for him. Uh, So should you. Mr. Arnott is responsible for such brands as Louis Vuitton and Christian Dior, and his net worth is $211 billion. But if we wanted to outdo that Frenchman as number one, we could. That's prideful desires in action if we had that second component to the world. The world consists of those three things, desires from the flesh, visual desires, and prideful desires. The big problem is no one has ever had the world. No one has even had a minute percentage of the world. It is rumored that Alexander the Great wept because he had no more nations to conquer, but he still didn't have the world. It is important to understand two specific things about this world system. One, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Notice Ecclesiastes 1 verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This preacher is Solomon. 
Solomon authored this book. Solomon was David's son from Bathsheba. Notice what Solomon said in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all, not some, all is vanity. We could read that as all that is in the world is vanity. The Hebrew word used in this second verse and translated as vanity means breath or vapor breath or vapor. It could also be translated as meaningless and pointless. Meaningless and pointless. One commentator described this Hebrew word as being soap bubbles. All is soap bubbles. Those soap bubbles are meaningless and pointless and have no purpose and vanish in seconds. Solomon was the whitest man on record. Until he sinned, violated God's moral code, and married 700 women. That was a total mental meltdown. <laughs> married 700 women. What would possess someone to do that? Solomon had enormous political power, and he was one of the richest men of all time. He had 40,000 stalls to house his horses. One horse per stall equals 40,000 horses. And he in addition, he had another 4,000 stalls to house both his horses and chariots. And even though Solomon at that time had all that someone could dream about, he admitted it didn't bring him true satisfaction. It was just vanity. It was essentially pointless and meaningless. Second, the world doesn't last. It doesn't last. 1 John 2 verse 17 and the world is passing away, and the lust, meaning the desires of it. On a personal basis, this world doesn't last any longer than we do. No matter how much someone possesses, it goes to someone else at his death. We aren't certain who first said this, but no one has ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. It doesn't happen. If we consider the time value of money, John T. Rockefeller was the richest man in modern times. After adjusting for inflation, he amassed a fortune equal to $340 billion. After he died in 1937, someone said to his personal accountant, I'm curious, just curious, just how much money did Mr. Rockefeller leave behind? His accountant responded, all of it? All of it. Because the world doesn't last. But according to these verses, even if in a hypothetical sense, someone did own all three compartments to the world, if he had all the desires from his flesh, if he had all his visual desires, if he had all his prideful and egotistical desires, it wouldn't matter if he were to lose his own soul. That brings us to a second question. What is the human soul? What is the human soul? All humans consist of both material and immaterial components. We all have both visible and invisible components. It is apparent that the material component we all have is our bodies, our actual anatomical structures. But there is an ongoing debate about our immaterial and invisible component. 
Does that internal, invisible, immaterial component inside us consist of two separate parts? Those parts being someone's soul and someone's spirit? Or are those parts, soul and spirit, one and the same? The word soul and spirit are sometimes used on an interchangeable basis in the New Testament to the extent some theologians consider someone's soul and spirit to be the exact same thing, just using different names to describe that immaterial, invisible component. And that's possible. But then some theologians consider someone's soul and spirit to be interrelated, but also actual separate entities. And that's also possible. I'm not choosing sides per se on that question, but throughout this message, in answering this question, I'm using the word soul to describe the immaterial, invisible essence of who we are as a person. Our soul is this immaterial, invisible essence of who we are as a person. And to be more specific, our souls consist of our intelligence, our will, meaning our volition, and our emotions. Intelligence, will, and emotions. The soul is the essence of who we are as a member of the Homo sapiens species. Homo sapien is, a, is from the Latin language and means, get this, Homo sapien means wise human. Wise human. That's not applicable in all cases. It's not. I won't mention names. See me after the service. As a footnote, in a more technical sense, I believe we are a soul and we have a spirit that is contained inside that soul. Notice Revelation 6, verse 9. John describes seeing in heaven those that were martyred under the Antichrist regime during the futuristic prophetical tribulation period on earth. Notice how he describes these people. When he, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls. Notice not the bodies. These are those disembodied souls. He saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, meaning martyred for the word of God and the testimony which they held. In a sense, and please don't miss this, in a sense, we aren't our bodies. And we never have been. We each have a tangible, we have tangible, material, visible bodies. Yes, but we are a soul. The real us is this immaterial, invisible, essential person inside our bodies called our souls. This is the interesting part. Our bodies die, but our souls never die. Our souls are considered immortal. Our souls are eternal. Our souls do exit our bodies at death, but those same souls continue to exist in a disembodied state until the resurrection. At the resurrection, our deceased bodies, our corpses, are made alive and remade to essentially become new bodies and then reunited with our souls. A disembodied means that our souls are minus our bodies. And that's our existence after death until the resurrection. Once we are someone, 
we continue to be that someone and we never cease to exist as that someone. The problem is some religions and some non-religions teach something different than that. Atheism is on the increase. That is unfortunate, that is factual. Atheism is on the rise. And atheists teach that after someone dies, he actually ceases to exist. He is no longer someone. His corpse becomes worm food, and he ceases to exist. Just as someone doesn't exist before his birth, according to atheism, he will also not exist after he dies. So that this time on this earth is all that someone has. People, that is a miserable prospect. There is no optimism. There is no hope in atheism. Some Eastern religions, such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and New Ageism, teach something called reincarnation. Reincarnation is also called transmigration. Reincarnation means someone's essence, someone's soul, is rebirthed into another bodily form, and that form could be human or animal, or I just read in some cases, it could be a vegetable. That's the reason I don't eat broccoli. It could be Uncle Charlie. I don't do it. <laughs> so, according to reincarnation, we're just recycled through different bodies. Reincarnation enthusiasts range from Socrates to George Patton to Henry Ford to singer Phil Collins, who is convinced he's the reincarnation of a survivor from the battle at the Alamo. Mark Twain was a reincarnationist. He made this statement, I have been born more times than anyone except Krishna. Krishna is a supposed Hindu god. Actress Shirley McCain, McLean, still alive at 88 and still a piece of work, said that in a previous existence, she was a princess in Atlantis, ignoring that Atlantis wasn't a real thing. She claimed she was an Inca in Peru, and she claimed she was even a child that some elephants raised. That's strange. In some previous, previous existences, she said she was female, and some she said she was a male. She is so confused. I would argue that there is no transmigration of souls, but there could be and are a transmigration of demons. Japanese Emperor Hirohito was the 124th Emperor of Japan. He ruled from 1926 through 1989. He was considered divine. The Japanese people considered him a god. He was also responsible for Japan's involvement in the Second World War, including the Japanese raid on Pearl Harbor. And although he should have been, he was never tried for war crimes. According to Shintoism, he wasn't permitted to be buried for seven weeks after he died so that his soul had enough time to go to his ancestors. That's a strange teaching. According to Jesus, the statements he made, someone can either save his soul or lose his soul. Let's start at the inevitable. Someone said there are two unavoidable things we all face, death and taxes. But if we have a smart accountant, then we can avoid some taxes. But no one 
avoids death. No one. There's a one in two million chance that we could die from falling out of bed. There's a one in 600,000 chance that we could be a victim from a lightning strike. There's a one in 70,000 chance we could become a Miss America. It used to be if we were male, there was a 0% chance we could become a Miss America. I guess that's not the case now as transgender women are now competing in these pageants and in some cases are winning. That's an embarrassment. I need to make a statement. I don't know if I've ever said this before. You need to understand where we're at. To counter this cultural mandate and societal craziness, understand that a trans woman is not a woman. A trans woman is not a woman. No matter what personal pronouns this person uses, no matter what gender reassignment surgeries this person has had, and no matter what restroom this person insists on using, a man is a man is a man is a man and is never a woman. It's not rocket science, but it is science, basic biology. There's a 1 in 12,000 chance we could find a pearl in an oyster. But there's a 100% chance we're scheduled to die. And unless someone commits suicide, then we all die before we expect to die. I've conducted hundreds of funerals, memorial services, for people of all ages, we had just moved to Northern California. We just had our first Sunday services. On Monday morning, I got a call said, come to the hospital in Walnut Creek. And I walked into a room, and there was a mother, the wife of our treasurer, an amazing woman. This mother sat there holding in her arms a full-term, stillborn, beautiful little girl. She died inside the mother probably hours earlier and was born in that deceased state. From that tragic beginning to people that have passed in their 90s and all ages in between, life is a terminal disease and we all die. What happens to us after our expiration date is contingent entirely on the status of our soul. Does our soul have salvation? Is our soul saved, or do we lose our soul? Jesus came to this earth to save our souls. 1 Peter 1, notice verse 8. Whom, this is Jesus from the preceding verse, whom Jesus, having not seen, you love. We haven't seen Jesus, but those of us that are Christians love Jesus. Though you do not see him, Jesus, yet believing Meaning we believe in and love Jesus even though we have never actually seen Jesus. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of gl glory. Verse 9, receiving the end of your faith. This is salvific faith, faith we put in Jesus for salvation. Notice the end of our salvific faith is the salvation of your souls. Paraphrasing that last part, it reads, The end result of receiving Jesus, who we cannot see, is that our souls are saved. There's a third question. What are our souls saved from? 
What are our souls saved from? The answer is that our souls are saved. And in the original language, saved means rescued from, freed from, delivered from. Our souls are saved from our sin, meaning we receive forgiveness. And we are saved, rescued from the eternal consequences on our sin. And those consequences transpire in a cosmic geographical region called hell. Historic evangelical Christianity teaches that, that at the precise micro moment someone dies, his soulish essence, his invisible person, evacuates his material being, and he goes on to continue to be himself somewhere else. These are the options. One, either in conscious happiness, first in heaven, and then on the recreated and eternal earth. Most people probably aren't aware of that, but at some point, earth comes to heaven. This heaven, now headquarters, are called the New Jerusalem, described in Revelation 21 and 22. And according to Revelation 21, verse 2, the New Jerusalem, heaven's headquarters, descends from heaven and lands and situates itself on a recreated earth. A recreated earth that has a garden of like Eden environment. And it is there on that recreated earth in that new Jerusalem. There, that will be our eternal residence. People don't understand that. If we die now as a Christian, then it's instant heaven. But at some point, the earth is going to be recreated, made new. And those of us that are in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, will descend to earth. And then we will establish our eternal home, never, never, never to leave. The second option, though, is someone goes on to continue to be himself in conscious torment. First, in a temporary confinement in the original language called Hades. Someone apart from Christ dies, instant Hades. And then in the ultimate and eternal hell called Gehenna in the ancient Greek language. Now, some people are probably shocked. I would mention the H word on Easter especially since I cannot remember the last time I mentioned that word in a sermon. That is an indictment, a com condemnation, not a commendation. But being saved and being rescued and being set free from eternal hell is part and parcel to the salvation package. Yes, in some cases, salvation means we are saved from ourselves because we're a mess. It means we're saved from self-destructive habits and saved from hang-ups and addictions and saved from toxic relations and saved from loneliness and depression and saved from a meaningless existence and on and on and on. But none of that matters as much as being saved from, rescued from divine retribution on our sin in hell because people, hell is forever. Even liberal progressive theologians recognize Jesus as the greatest authority on love from all time. No one ever demonstrated more love than did Jesus. No one ever mentioned love more than did Jesus. But at the same time, no one ever talked about eternal torment more than did Jesus either. Jesus mentioned hell more times than any other person in Scripture because it is a reality that He wants us to avoid. 
This state is known for gaming and gambling. I don't gamble. I don't even play fantasy football. Uh, but if I did gamble, I wouldn't dare gamble on hell being an urban legend. I wouldn't dare risk my soul. I wouldn't dare gamble on hell being some, you know, this fable or some, you know, fictitious thing that, you know, Christians have created. No. How can someone be so foolish as to gamble on his eternal soul? To lose someone's soul means someone hasn't been saved, someone hasn't been rescued and set free from sin. So this person is unforgiven. And he hasn't been saved and rescued from the eternal consequences on sin. So to possess all that the world has, to have all of it, but to reject Jesus is to lose one's soul to hell. It is inconceivable to think that someone would forfeit an eternal existence in absolute happiness in heaven for a limited period of time on earth in self-indulgence. But that's what most people are doing. The final question is, how then does someone secure salvation? How does someone secure salvation for his soul? How is someone's soul saved? A recent Life magazine cover had an artist's rendering of Jesus on the front. And the question from Jesus, who do you say that I am? The answer to that question is this. Jesus is the second member of the triune Godhead. The triune Godhead consists of one being called God in the Hebrew language, Yahweh. And that one being we call God exists in three co-equal and co-eternal persons. One person is the Father, one person is the Son, Jesus, and one person is the Holy Spirit. Some 20 centuries ago, Per his father's instructions, Jesus the Son left heaven to be born on this earth in the form of a human. He didn't cease being God, but he started at his birth in Bethlehem becoming a man. That unique combination of God and man is called his hypostatic union. Hypostatic union describes how Jesus as God brought onto himself a human nature and remained God at the same time. So the hypostatic union is Jesus who exists as one person, but who has two distinct natures. One is divine and one is human. He was as much man as if he had never been God, and he was as much God as if he had never been made man. And that dual nature was critical to God's plan to save us. God originated a principle called justice. It's one of his attributes as God. Modern societies have theoretically adopted that principle called justice. That's the reason we have a sophisticated judicial system consisting of law enforcement agencies, courtrooms, judges, juries, attorneys, and more than two million inmates incarcerated in jails and prisons. I said we have theoretically adopted justice because George Soros funded judges don't actually enforce this principle. Those men and women uh, uh, turn felonies into misdemeanors and let violent offenders go free to continue to terrorize communities. And it's getting worse. 
Don't forget this principle. Justice teaches that crime must be paid for, or we would rephrase that as sin has to be punished. God cannot ignore sin and pretend that it doesn't happen. God is obligated by virtue of who He is as God and His holiness to punish sin. It would be contrary to His nature as God not to punish sin. But there are two options God had in punishing our sins. First, God can punish our sins on us. God can punish our sins on us. That's a logical option. Since we did the crime, we should do the time. Not a good option for us, though. A second option, God can punish someone else for our sins. In that case, punishing our sins would meet the demand from justice to punish sin, but those sins wouldn't be punished on us. And that's a good thing. That second option presents a significant problem, though, as no one qualifies to be punished for our sins since we all have our own sins to be punished for. So God prepared His Son through the means of this hypostatic union to be the sinless substitute that would endure that punishment. Because of that hypostatic union, Jesus was different from all other men. Because He had a human nature, he was tempted to sin, as all men are. Because he had a divine nature, though, he couldn't sin, because God cannot sin. Jesus was different from all other men, because he was sinless, the only sinless human that has ever existed. Jesus lived a life we couldn't live. And Jesus died a death we should have died. But Jesus died as our substitute and in our state. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, summarizes the gospel. For he, God the Father, made him his son Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. To be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be acceptable to God in him, meaning in Jesus. This verse consists of 15 words. In the Greek text, notice God the Father made His Son Jesus to be sin for us. How was that possible? God treated Jesus as though He had committed every sin ever committed by every person from all time, although He actually had committed none of them. He hung on the cross as the undefiled, holy, sinless, sacrificial lamb from God. He was never for one second a sinner himself. But God treated Jesus on that cross as though he was a sinner because God positioned our sins onto him. And then God punished him for those sins. And then because I, on a personal basis, I have received Jesus... And because he has saved me, God now treats me as though I had never sinned. So when God sees the cross, he sees me, me because my sins were there. And when God now sees me, he sees Jesus because I am now the righteousness of God in him. Jesus died. Jesus was buried in a tomb that had never been used before, but after three dates and nights... He was resurrected from the dead. 
People sometimes don't understand the concept of a resurrection. It's this simple. Imagine you're attending a funeral service, and there's a casket here, and the casket is closed. In the middle of the service, the casket lid starts to open up, and the deceased in the casket sits up and then climbs up out of the casket and walks out. That's a resurrection. Now, I probably, I'd have to do more funerals after that. People die from shock because that doesn't happen. But that's a resurrection. Someone that is dead, thoroughly dead, is now made alive. Jesus wasn't resurrected as a spiritual phantom. It was a literal, material, visible, bodily resurrection. Jesus was just as alive post-resurrection as he was alive pre-resurrection. So much so that over the centuries, based on a verse from Luke 24, verse 34, the church has created a tradition to celebrate that resurrection. Let's rehearse that tradition. The resurrection announcement consists of three words, and the response to that announcement consists of four words. For some of you, you've never heard this. For others of you, you should remember. I want us to rehearse that. Let me recite the announcement, and then let's see as a congregation if we know the response to that announcement. Here it is. He is risen. Okay, that was pitiful. <laughs> he is risen. He is risen indeed. That was better. One more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Indeed, he is risen. Acts 16, starting at verse 30. Paul and his associate Silas had been arrested and put into chains and thrown into a prison that resembled more of a dungeon. Just after midnight, God caused an earthquake to shake apart that prison. The prison doors were literally blown apart. And the prisoners were all freed from their cells and chains. In contradiction to his orders, this jailer who was responsible for this prison had fallen asleep during his watch. That was a no-no. He was asleep until this earthquake jarred him awake. He instantly knew if a single prisoner had escaped, that he would be executed. He would be stripped of his clothes, a fire would be started using those clothes, and he would be burned to death in that fire. Not wanting to be tortured until he died, he started to commit suicide. And then Paul stopped him. And Paul announced to him that none of the prisoners had escaped. All of them were still there. This jailer felt that announcement alone was miraculous. That just shouldn't happen. But it did, and it shook him to, its, to his core. Notice verse 29. Then he, this jailer that was responsible for any prisoners that could escape, then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Notice he was trembling, in part because he realized that this earthquake wasn't a coincidence. It was an act of God meant to send him a message. And he trembled in part because he had just escaped certain execution and had just avoided an attempt at suicide. Verse 30, and he brought them, Paul and Silas, out and said, notice, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have salvation. There is not a more succinct, relevant, 
and personal question, then that question. What must we do to receive salvation so that our soul is saved? Verse 31 is the answer. So they, Paul and Silas, said to this man, Believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That was a straight-up, no-nonsense response to this man's question. The answer to this man's question is that someone's salvation is secured through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not through some ritualistic, ceremonial, religious act the church requires, such as reciting a hundred Hail Marys. Not through checking off an extensive list of spiritual do's and don'ts. Not through being baptized in a temple at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a secret ceremony not through an expensive pilgrimage to Mecca. None of that. Salvation is secured. Our soul is saved through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe means to trust in, to put our confidence in, to put our reliance on, to hang our bodies on. That's the essence of trust. To trust in something or in someone. And in this case, it is someone. That someone is Jesus But in a more technical sense, believing on Jesus is similar to a double-sided coin. This is a coin. This is a quarter. This quarter has two sides. One is heads, one is tails. Um, It cannot just be one side and constitute a legal quarter. Uh, It can't be just heads or it can't be just tails. It is both sides. And in that same sense... Believing on Jesus is a double-sided coin. On one side is repentance, and on the opposite and simultaneous side of that coin is faith. On one side is repentance, on the second and opposite side is faith. Now, repentance essentially is is a turning from. Repentance is a turning, changing our mind, and deciding to turn from something. Faith is a turning to or a turning toward. So the double-sided coin called believing on Jesus means first repenting from, turning from our sin. It's interesting, I just illustrated sin. Notice on the left, it was on the left side. Did you notice that? That was almost subliminal, but it was there. Okay. (laughs) Repentance means turning from sin, but it doesn't stop there. It's one simultaneous act. Repentance and faith, and then turning to or turning toward Jesus as our Savior and forgiver. That's what it means to believe on Jesus. True faith, genuine faith, reaching out in salvific faith for Jesus includes repentance. We cannot turn toward Jesus in salvific faith unless at the same time we're turning from our sin in repentance. Especially the sin of not believing on Jesus. To lose someone's soul means someone hasn't been saved. Someone hasn't been rescued from sin and the eternal consequences on sin. So to possess, according to Jesus, all that the world has, but then to reject Jesus is to lose one's soul to hell.
We said earlier, it is inconceivable how someone would forfeit an eternal existence and absolute happiness in heaven for a limited period of time on earth in self-indulgence, even if that person had all the world has. But that's what people are doing in a hypothetical sense. If we have the world, if we have excelled at a particular athletic discipline to where we're considered the GOAT, GOAT is an acronym, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. If we were able to achieve that status and we lose our soul, that GOAT status won't matter in hell. If we have accumulated such a financial fortune that in a comparative sense, Elon Musk's net worth seems like chump change. If we lose our soul, those fantastic financial assets won't matter in hell. If we're a hedonist, a hedonist on steroids, and have never denied ourselves a single pleasure, even if it was immoral or illegal, if we lose our soul, that sort of excess won't matter in hell. Understand, please don't miss this. Nothing, nothing, nothing here matters in hell. Nothing will matter to us if we lose our soul. On Sunday night, on a Sunday night in October, in the front room of our small house at 7735 Jefferson Street on the southwest side of Kansas City, and this is that house, still inhabited, still there. On that night, I made the most significant decision I've ever made. From childhood, I had believed in Jesus in a more intellectual sense. I cannot consciously remember not believing in Jesus. I believed he was who he said he was. I believed he did what he said he did. But it was more intellectual. I knew about him but I didn't know him in a personal, relational sense. He might have been big in my head, but he wasn't in my heart. We had been to a church service that night. The message had troubled me, and that was probably an understatement. I got home, I couldn't sleep. It was about 10.30, and I got my father out of bed so we could talk. We went into our front room. I understood that my sin was unacceptable to God. I understood that Jesus was sacrificed for my sins on a cross and that he wanted to become my savior and forgiver if I would believe in him and receive him. I wanted Jesus that night more than I've ever wanted anything. And this is also vivid in my mind as I recall this. Salvation is a matter of the heart. And praying to receive Jesus isn't some prescribed magical formula or some spiritual incantation. No, it is none of that. Salvific praying just represents, it's just verbalizing what someone's heart is doing in believing on Jesus and entrusting Him for salvation. My father helped me through that decision, but I distinctly remember getting on my knees beside our couch I bowed my head, and through simple childlike faith, I remember praying something like this, Jesus, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you were buried and rose again. And I really want you to come into my life. I want you to be my Savior. Please forgive me of my sins.
and help me to follow you. That was the moment of salvation for me. I got saved that night. From that moment on, my soul is saved and secure. Are you saved? Or is your soul still up for grabs? I want us to bow our heads, please. Everyone's head is bowed. Our eyes are closed. I don't know anyone's heart in this room. I don't know your spiritual status. I don't know if you're confident of your salvation, if you can recall a time and a place and a moment like I did where I received Jesus and I was saved. I don't know. But if you don't have that, if you're questioning your spiritual status, if you're not certain you're forgiven, if you're not absolutely sure that once you die, it's instant heaven, then we can rectify that. And I want to so much. In the back of the chair in front of you, could be to the right or left, there's a card, a simple card. That card reads, Pastor Larry, I listened to your message this morning, and I definitely don't want to be in danger of losing my soul. I would like for you to contact me as I very much want to better understand how my soul can be saved. And if you have an interest in knowing Jesus personally and in nailing down the question of what happens to me after I die, please fill out that card. Sign your name. Put down your email, your phone number. And I promise I will contact you and we can meet together as soon as it's possible. And I can share from you, from the scriptures, how you can have Jesus for real and forever. Please don't gamble on your soul. No one here has even a minute part of the world. None of us do. None of us ever will have. But it wouldn't matter if we did, if we lost our soul. Please don't take a chance on your soul. Fill out that card. Give it to me as you leave or put it in the offering box on the wall just before you go out the door. In either case, I would be thrilled and I would be honored to meet with you and share with you how you can have Jesus just as I do. Father in heaven, thank you for what we've learned. Thank you so much for the provision of your son who substituted himself on a cross for our sins so that through accepting him, believing on him, trusting him, inviting him into our life, we can have forgiveness from all sin, past, present, and future, and we can be guaranteed of an eternal home in heaven with you. God, I pray that people here will think through this and will respond to this and that people will come to faith because of this message. We commit it to you and thank you again for the sacrifice of your son. And it's in his name I ask. Amen and amen.